Hello, and welcome to the CFA UK podcast series on climate change. My name is John Tehan, and I am a portfolio manager with Red Wheel. In these CFA UK podcasts, we hope to shed light on issues facing portfolio managers, analysts, and others within the financial industry as we face the challenge of climate change. In this episode, I am joined by Philip Roof. Philip is Head of Research and Analytics at SparkChange. SparkChange is a specialist provider of carbon data, analytics, insight, and financial products. Philip is an expert on carbon and energy markets and has extensive experience analyzing global carbon markets. He has advised governments, major corporates, banks, and trading houses on global carbon markets and was involved in previous reforms of the EU emissions trading scheme. He has been invited to speak at the European Parliament and the European Commission as an expert on various stakeholder consultations. And with that, welcome, Philip. Hi, John. Hi, everybody, and thanks for having me today. Great, Philip. So let's just start with your background. What got you interested in carbon markets and how has your career path brought you to spark change? Yeah, it's a long time now. So I probably started in carbon markets roughly 11 years back. And I started out of university. So my major in university was kind of a mixture between engineering, so really power engineering, if you want, so power generation, and financial engineering on the more business administration side. So I did a kind of mixture study between business administration and engineering. So I, always, I was in university and I always thought, why are we not just implementing the best solution for these problems when it comes to energy, right? So why don't we do more renewable energy? You have to think 15 years back, right? Um, so I came to policy at a certain point and wanted to understand why decisions are taken, how they are taken. So my game, my, my plan was after university to start working at least for internship in the policy world. So I went to Brussels, started to work in the lobbying field for um, back in the time and still the biggest association on carbon markets globally to understand why do things run how they run. That's why I started to come to carbon markets, to be honest. So not much in, um, in my studies, but really afterwards, by wanting to work in the kind of mixture between energy and finance. Um, I spent roughly half a year in Brussels there working really closely with the parliament, with the commission. So I got a lot of this policy angle, which is very important in carbon markets. Then came back to Germany and started to work at a really small startup back then, which did analysis on carbon markets back in the time, only on Europe. So joined as a carbon market analyst, um, focusing on policy topics, but also really fundamentals. So how do emissions develop? How do all these other pieces develop in, in a carbon market? And then from there, kind of took over the responsibility for the European analysis. We grew really quickly and were basically bought by a big um, British kind of information service provider. So we grew rapidly, started to work on the Chinese ETS, on the American ETSs. And that's how my role developed as well. So I took over responsibility for these markets and then kind of um, worked further into the energy world. So then build up a product and a team for power market analytics, gas analytics, LNG. So you can say every a little bit greener energy commodity I touched in the past in my, in my job. I never worked on oil. I never worked on coal. Um, but basically all the all the rest. And then in the end, um, we were a global team of roughly 50 energy analysts um, in the US, in Asia, in Europe, mainly in Europe. Um, yeah, and then back end of 2021, Spark Change approached me. Um, some former colleagues worked there. Um, it sounded like a very, very interesting and very thrilling project. I wanted to get back a little bit in the trenches of analysis, so not only manage, but do a lot more myself again. And that's why I joined. Spark change back in 2021 20, now. 
And so Spark Change itself is quite a recent startup, right? It was 2018? Yes, it was, um, it was around three years before I joined. Um, and it was founded by a chap called Dan Barry, who I also knew from my previous life because he was the um, global head of environmental products at BP. Um, and in his job, basically, at BP, he figured that carbon markets um, are very close. They are very much compliance markets for the companies who have a compliance obligation using these markets, but it's not really accessible for investors, which is a, is a real, which was a real shame, and it didn't make them really efficient. Carbon markets were not really efficient when you think back, I don't know, 2015, 16, 17. Um, so he wanted to start a company which allowed investors to get access to the carbon market, um, which brought basically the first product of SparkChange around, which is the first, the first physically exchange-traded commodity backed uh, by European carbon allowances. So really an ETC where investors can invest in, which is backed one-to-one -one by physical EUAs. So it makes it investable um, for the finance world, so to say, to buy physical carbon allowances. That was the first um, product we had. And that's something I'd really like to touch more on to understand that market. In one of the interviews I read from you in preparation, you said that one of your roles was to educate the financial community. And for us, this CFA UK podcast is very much about educating our audience and ourselves. And maybe if we just start with the basics before we jump into some of the detail, we have different carbon markets. We talk a lot about carbon permits. We talk about carbon offsets. We talk about compliance markets. We talk about voluntary markets. Can you just very briefly define what the difference is between those different parts? So everyone, when you talk about carbon markets, everyone first, first thinks about offsetting, which is kind of what we can all do on a personal level, right? We fly um, and we buy kind of some kind of carbon credit to offset the emissions we had on this flight. Um, that's not what we work in at Spark Change. Um, and that's probably not what we will talk about mostly in the podcast today. We talk about compliance, or you can also call it regulated carbon markets. The biggest difference is regulated carbon markets are mandatory for companies to participate in, while as the name already says, right, voluntary carbon market. So the offset market is very much voluntary for everyone. So that's the first really key difference. The other bit is the compliance market or regulated carbon markets is aligned to a certain target. So it can be the Paris Alliance. So you can think about everyone who pledges their carbon reduction or every kind of jurisdiction who pledges the carbon reduction target towards the Paris Agreement can implement this in their carbon market. And the carbon market will make sure that this target is actually reached. So it is compliant to a Paris world or to a net zero world, while voluntary markets are not. You can still emit as much as you want. You just have to buy the credit to offset it, but your emissions don't necessarily go down. Regulated carbon markets are um, fully standardized and they are a lot bigger than voluntary carbon markets. I guess one part that falls between the two is Corsia. So within aviation, can you explain, because that, that does also cause confusion. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a weird mixture, exactly. And COSIA, just for everyone who doesn't know, is the kind of global um, approach of ICAO, so the international um, aviation body, so to say, to tackle climate change. What they do is they create a kind of a compliance market. So, co so aviation operators in countries who participate in COSIA will have to hand in offsets. So they have a compliance obligation, but they can kind of... Um, comply with, with this obligation by handing in offsets and credits, um, which need to have a certain eligibility criteria. 
Um, so it needs to be from certain projects of certain quality standards and so on. So there is a, it's an example for compliance market where you can use offsets. Some other regulated markets also allow for offsets. The market in the UN, California, for example, the Western Climate Initiative allows companies to use a certain part of their obligation by offsets. In the EU, that was the case in the past as well. It's not allowed anymore since 2021. In Korea, some offsets are allowed. So you do have a little bit of a mix and match. Um, but then it's that offsets are just allowed in a compliance, in a regulated market to a lower extent normally. And in this podcast, we're very much going to focus on the carbon permits. In effect, the the, the license to pollute. Exactly. Yep. So if we start with that, and if we think about the, the history of the EU emissions trading scheme, can you just talk us through that development? So the EU ETS, the European Emission Trading System, started as the first of its kind back in 2005. So at least the first large-scale emission market. Um, it has a, had a test period from 2005 to seven. Um, so the real market started in 2008. I mean, since then, it's organized in phases. You had what's called the phase two from 2008 to 12. Then we had phase three from 2013 to 20. And we are currently in the, first, in the fourth phase, which is 2021 to 2030. It includes the power sector and energy-intensive industry. For example, cement production, metals, oil and gas refining, chemicals, pulp and paper, um, aviation, and as of 2024, also maritime. The whole idea about a compliance market is to align them to a certain target, what I said before. So what the compliance market does, it, it sets a certain cap, which means a maximum amount of, in, allowance, in compliance market, you call them allowances because it allows you to emit one ton of CO2. So it sets a cap of a maximum amount of allowances um, going forward up to a certain target, which means as every company who is in the system has to hand in one allowance per ton of emissions, emissions have to go down because allowances are going down. Um, and at the moment, the EU tries to reach or is set up to reach a 62% reduction target in 2030 compared to 2005 emissions. So really, really ambitious reduction targets. And the ETS is the cornerstone of the European efforts to combat climate change. So the EU ETS does more than all the other emissions we have out there, right? Um, so what happened if we look a little bit on history, back in 2008, in the second trading period, the market started at roughly 25 euros per ton. Um, and then the financial crisis hit, which meant carbon prices. So industry production went down, right? Which meant, uh, which meant emissions went down. But supply was fixed by regulation, which had the effect that prices tended down. To the lowest level back in 2013, roughly a year after I started in carbon market, where carbon prices were below three euros per ton. So it really, you can say it didn't do anything except companies tracking their CO2, right? And having an obligation to verify how much they actually emit. So the regulator got active back in 2013, even a little bit before, and tried to adjust the market, adjust the supply um, according to kind of the real economy, right? Which went significantly down during that time. So we had some emergency measures, um, which the regulator put in place. And then there was um, kind of a bigger reform um, towards 2016, 17, where the regulator put in kind of an automatic automated adjustment function for supply in the ETS to make sure if macroeconomic 
circumstances change, right? If emissions are going down, supply of the system has to react as well. Because if we have only a demand reduction, this is poised to go wrong. Um, if you have one side of the equation fixed and the other one flexible, that will create additional problems in the future as well. So this kind of dynamic supply side reaction, which is called the market stability reserve or MSR, was introduced then back in 2017 and got into force in 2019. So I would like to understand that a bit better. But before we jump into that, of the total greenhouse gas emissions in the European Union, how much are covered by the EU ETS? How much was and, and how is that developing? It was a little bit more than 50% when it started. I think 55, 56. Um, we're probably down below 50% now because simply the burden is higher on ETS sectors. So all the other stuff, right, when you can imagine is transport, heating, so Domestic heating, not um, not district heating, that's all not covered in the ETS. But the European Union also tries or will start a second ETS in the next couple of years where exactly all the other emissions will be covered. So we will have two emission trading systems in Europe going forward. So what industrial sectors are currently excluded? Industrial sectors excluded is everything which is not poised to be energy intense. So everything you can imagine... Um, it's actually easier to do it the other way around. Included is um, cement and lime, metals, oil and gas, pulp and paper, ceramics and glass. There's a other sector, which is a lot of different industries, um, aviation and then maritime. Mainly your personal emissions are not covered. If you think about you driving your car, you heating your home, um, that's most of the emissions which are not covered under the ETS at the moment, but that's a sizable chunk of the of EU's emissions, right? But do you think that that will ever come within the, the ETS? Or is that more to do with the uh, retail side, if you like, or the, a different carbon tax? The European Union, so the regulators of the European Union came to a conclusion end of last year to create a second emission trading system where exactly these emissions are covered. So a separate system, which will not be so the compliance obligation will not be on the private person but more on the retailer so on the fuel retailer for example they will have a compliance obligation then towards the second ets it is possible if we look kind of 10 years out or longer that these two ets's will merge at a certain point right that we have one for now they stay separate because simply um the regulator was also a little bit worried about energy poverty in these topics right if we throw everything in one mix we we will have one price, right? And probably for the metal producer, it's easier to pay a certain price than for kind of the low-income household in Bulgaria. Just make up an example. Um, so it was decided to take this separately at the beginning and then see how it runs and potentially move it together in the future. From a high-level point of view, why go down the permit route rather than a carbon tax? That's a very good question. Historically, why Europe decided on an ETS was because two main reasons. First of all, is it's always difficult for the European Union to impose a tax on a European level. You need unanimity of all member states and so on. So it's really difficult to get a tax approved in the European setting. The other big topic was back when we think back to the Kyoto Protocol, right? That's the basis of everything. The US back then pressured more or less Europe towards um, a trading system because they felt that's the better solution than a tax. Um, and the US wanted to go down the route of a trading system as well. Europe got on board, implemented everything, started the trading system, and then more or less the US kind of chickened out of Kyoto, if you want it that way. 
Um, so it had a lot to do with the US wanting to have this trading system because it's more efficient. Um, it's not that it's not that much kind of regulated than a tax. Um, but the, currently, the more important reason is it's just harder in Europe to implement a tax. And then a tax doesn't deliver a certain reduction target, right? Um, it just puts a price on emission, which is great. But it doesn't ensure that you reach a certain target, which an ETS does. Is there less certainty for corporates when there's a permit with the price moving around than a carbon tax? Yeah, there's price risk. There's price risk. Um, regulatory risk you have in both instances, right? A tax can be changed as well. Um, but yeah, you have more price risk in, um, in a permit system, definitely. In my view, though, corporates are very used to this price risk, right? They operate on moving oil markets and moving gas markets and moving electricity markets. It's nothing new. Um, it's a fluctuating commodity like every other commodity as well. So I don't think that's a big issue. But yeah, it, you do have a price risk in a permit market. And you mentioned the US then not implementing their own ETS. Have there been developments there? So you mentioned California earlier on. You've mentioned China. So globally, US, elsewhere, what's happening? Yes, there is. Um, so I think WCI or the Western Climate Initiative was the second big, big system out there. It's mainly California. So California decided to do its own carbon pricing system because there was no federal system going forward in the US. Um, what happened then is some Canadian provinces, Quebec and Nova Scotia, joined the system with California. So it's quite an interesting market. You have one state and two provinces in one system. Um, and then a second system came up, which is called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is in some northern eastern states in the US, um, around New York, Washington, you could say. Um, so there's another set of states which joined one system and has a full, full-fledged cap-and-trade market, so to say, only for the power market, though. So Reggie only includes power generators. Then what you had in Europe, Switzerland has an ETS, which is 100% linked to the EU ETS. UK has its own ETS since it left the European Union. So that's a market which is very similar to the EU ETS. And then you have some Asian countries, um, mainly Korea has an ETS, um, Kazakhstan has an ETS, very weirdly, um, New Zealand has an ETS, and then China started some years back with some pilot phases. So how China approached it, they said, we want to do the perfect system. So we start, if I remember correctly, it was eight pilot markets in different provinces. They all operate a little bit different. And then after some time, we do um, a nationwide system based on the best example we had in these provinces. Didn't really go as planned, but since 2021, China has a national ETS only for the power market. And still the provincial ETSs um, exist, which then covers some more sectors. But China is committed to move this forward to include some industries, but it's a slow-moving process. And you always have to see a Chinese ETS is not as um, easily accessible, not as transparent as, for example, a European system. So it's a very closed system, so to say, where rules change frequently and on very short notice. And how have prices moved? We've seen in, in, in Europe, the carbon price here is at a record level. It's gone over 100 euros a tonne. Has it moved similarly in these other trading schemes? Not to that extent. So yes, prices tend to go up everywhere, more or less. Um, but you also have to say WCI, so the Californian market, has a floor price. So it's poised to go up. I think we're roughly at $20, $28, 30 at the moment there. So significantly lower than in Europe, but higher than in the past. Reggie moves a little bit up. UK, it's very linked to the EU ETS. So it 
not one-to-one, but it moves in similar directions, Switzerland as well, um, for the Asian markets as well. So every market goes a little bit up, but this kind of increase in Europe from, we're speaking, 5 euros back in 2018, right, to 100 euros now, that didn't happen anywhere else. So Europe is by far the most ambitious and I would say best regulated market in that way. So if we think about the fungibility of carbon permits across markets, would you say UK, Europe, Switzerland, that's fungible market where the others are quite different? And unfortunately, not even these three. So the only fungible markets are Europe and Switzerland. So you could use Swiss allowances in Europe and the other way around. But Switzerland is not so big in terms of the market. Um, UK and EU is for now very separate. There is the potential to link these two because the markets are operated very similar. Um, while there is no fungibility for a European allowance in the US or in China or in Korea or the other way around. Europe and Australia once had a plan to do this. Then a new government got elected in Australia and the plan basically fell through. Um, but for now, and I, I honestly, I also don't expect this to happen soon, fungibility of these credits globally, what you could see is an overarching credit, something like offsets, right? That they are eligible in every system and you could use them here and there. But I don't expect that um, the allowances are really fungible, with the exception of maybe UK and Europe. Which brings me on to the the introduction of the, the carbon border adjustment mechanism, how that fits with the EU ETS. Obviously, uh, you, you, you referred earlier, and we we're going to go into detail perhaps now on that, as how um, permits are being reduced, the allowances are being reduced. How does that fit with CBAM and how does that fit with these other global carbon permit markets? CBAM or the carbon border adjustment mechanism is actually one of probably the most interesting reforms in carbon markets we had in the last decade. Because it's not only a market reform for Europe, but you could say it's a, it's a policy tool of Europe to incentivize the world to do more. Why? It's how it's set up. So the idea is that um, exporters into Europe in certain industries, again, energy intensive, like metal, aluminium, fertilizer, um, cement and lime, some base chemicals, they have to pay for their carbon when they import into the European Union. And they don't have to pay the European price, but they pay the difference between the price they pay locally in their jurisdictions and the EU price. So as an example, if I'm a fertilizer produ- fertilized producer in the UK and I export to Europe, I don't have to pay addition because the carbon prices are very similar. If I do the same from Turkey, where there's no carbon price, I have to pay the entire EU price, which ends up with the European Union. So basically what Turkey is doing, they're exporting money. Um, So that was the idea of the European Union to say, it's much better for you to have your own system. Then you keep the money locally and you don't have to transport and that you don't have to transfer it to us. It's the first interesting piece of this, right? And you do see already, especially countries like Turkey, thinking about introducing a carbon market now because they want to keep the money, obviously, in their country and not export it to, um, to, to the European Union. So that's basically the whole idea, right? To create an equal playing field um, that exporters into the EU have to pay the same price than domestic producers of that good in the EU. That's the whole idea. Um, it's not in, in, um, in force yet, so it starts in 2026. It enters over a 10-year time period, so it phases in gradually. But to ensure this level playing field, and that was very important to make it WTO-compliant, WTO compliant, sorry, 
is at the same time, it means European producers need to lose their subsidies to be on a on an equal playing field. So free allowances, which are handed out to producers at the moment, they need to phase out in the same amount that CBAM phases in for exporters into the EU. That means European companies will not have more emissions suddenly, right? But they will have to pay for more of their emissions. That changes the market significantly. And these exporters start to come into the ETS, so to say, um, as of 2026. So in effect, as the European industry loses those free allowances, it's protected from that external competition because the importers into Europe or the exporters into Europe, if you like, they are being penalized equally. But I guess then what about if you're a European firm exporting out of the European Union? That is probably more of a challenge, right? Until these other countries, these other markets impose a similar framework, it's disadvantaging European exporters. Exactly. That was a big discussion in the policy, um, policy negotiations. At the moment, exporters out of Europe, so to say, um, are not exempted from the local carbon price, so they will still have to pay. So there you have the competition problem. That's exactly right. It's not yet solved in legislation, but the legislator thinks about it, how they handle, how to handle this best. And so they've, there is a, a test period, I guess, between now and the end of 2025. You see it's going live at the beginning of 2026, but it's a phased introduction over the following 10 years. Yeah, exactly. So what starts now um, is the MRV already, so the monitoring, reporting, verification, so that all the kind of companies can get ready for this, right? All the exporters into Europe, and then it starts as of as of 2026. And then let's see how it runs. It sounds fiendishly complicated when you think of what you said about the, the Chinese um, emissions trading system. How does Europe assess that market when it is so opaque and, and so complicated? That's a very good question. Um, so how the how the carb how the um, carb border adjustment will work is that exporters into Europe or kind of the companies outside of Europe which are covered under the CBAM they will have to report their emissions and they will need to get this verified by an external independent provider. So then their kind of European carbon bill, so to say, is set up based on this independently verified emissions. If a company doesn't do that, there's a fallback. So the European Union will kind of calculate emission intensity for certain products from certain regions. And if a company doesn't come with a verified intensity, they will just get slashed on the um, the fallback of the European Union. And prices are thankfully um, are thankfully transparent, right? You know which sectors are covered in China. You know which price they pay. So you can just apply a difference. That's thankfully transparent. In terms of how much emissions they have, the European Union is kind of uh, needs the companies to play ball, so to say, and tell them, verify how much emissions they have. If they don't do it, there's a, a not so favorable fallback. So if we take one sector as an example, the steel sector, there has been some pushback, as we talked about, about the, the loss of export value. I think the, the export value is something like 20 billion uh, euros per annum, and therefore that is at risk. So there's negotiations obviously going on. So ha have they come to a conclusion in how quickly CBAM will be introduced and the free allowances will be phased out? Yes. So the idea is to start in 2026 and then it starts relatively slowly to phase in um, and it's fully phased in in 2034. Um, and there will be review periods in between from the legislator where they can have a look, does it actually work as intended? Or for example, do we punish our industry that they don't export anymore. Um, so there are review periods in legislation 
um, review timelines. Um, currently, the idea is 10-year phase-in from 2026 going forward. Um, and it's a gradually phase-in of CBAM and a phase-out of reallocation. And the concern is leakage, that, that companies move their manufacturing or production out of the European Union. Has leakage happened to date, say, within the steel industry? There's some some industry bodies claim there has been a leakage of workers from the European Union away to other markets. What have you seen? It's difficult to say, to be honest. There is, I haven't seen any kind of scientific work or empirical evidence that it actually happened. Obviously, companies claim it a lot, right? That's the normal lobby game, I would say. Um, I haven't come across any really credible um, scientific study really proving that there is leakage happening. And we also have to keep in mind, right, so far, industry got most of the emissions for free still. There are not many industries who are actually really paying for their scope one emissions. You could say now, right, with the energy crisis we had last year, yeah, but electricity prices get pushed up by carbon markets as well. So it's not only a scope one, I have to pay for my carbon problem, but also my electricity bill goes higher. Um, but then, especially if we look on last year, right, that was not driven by carbon, it's driven by gas prices. Um, and yeah, and so far, as I said, I, I don't know any credible study who proves leakage, but it is a theoretical risk, and that's why free allocation is out there. And CBAM is focused on direct emissions, which is scope one. It excludes scope two, right? No, it includes both now. That was changed in the negotiations. The commission proposed to include only scope one, but then the European Parliament and the Council put scope two on the um, on the compliance obligation as well. This brings us to the end of part one of my interview with Philip Roof. Please do listen to part two, where I continue this very interesting conversation with Philip, with the focus pivoting to how carbon exposure and carbon permits might be incorporated into stock and sector research and included in investment portfolios. And just a note to add that I will be speaking at the CFA UK's climate conference, Investing in the Net Zero Transition, taking place in London on the 23rd of May. My session covers how to assess and support investments in companies that are navigating the transition to net zero. I'd love to see you there. Feel free to say hello and we can chat. You can book your place by visiting cfauk.org slash net zero transition. And thank you for listening. If you found this conversation interesting, then please hit like and share with others. Thank you again and goodbye.